The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. A scholar observed that in some ways Samuel Pepys is to the diary what Montaigne is to the essay. For his balance of interior and public comment, variety of subject matter, and the apparent simplicity of accounting, become models for the journal. Samuel Pepys has become famous as a writer. Like Anne Frank or Marco Polo, his diaries have propelled him into the literary pantheon. But this fame, as a writer, was extremely unlikely. Pepys was known in his day not as a diarist, not even as an amateur writer or occasional poet, but as an administrator, a factotum, a very successful one, but a bureaucrat nevertheless. He was the secretary of the admiralty, working tirelessly for his kings, Charles II and James II. Charles II was the first of the Restoration kings, and for those of you not steeped in English history, that means we are in the years of the 1660s, in the immediate aftermath of the Commonwealth, led by Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan who had led the ouster of Charles I and become the Lord Protector. Cromwell died, and his son Richard took over for a while, but he was not very experienced militarily and had a hard time gaining the respect or support of the army that was ensuring the Commonwealth's power. Eventually, he resigned and fled to France, leading the way for Charles II to take over. Charles II was not a strong king. He himself had some personal problems, personal failings, shall we say, with debauchery, competing for foreign policy, ineptitude, in the list of things for which he was and is criticized. His 25 years on the throne were beset by problems, including the Great Plague of 1665 and the Great Fire of London in 1666. But he lasted long enough to become stable, and he presided over a reign that also saw St. Paul's Cathedral and many other churches rise. Charles II was succeeded by James II. This was the backdrop for our bureaucrat, Samuel Pepys, who had earned the trust of both Charles and James. He went from being a tailor's son in a rising family, to a job on a ship, to his life's vocation, a secretary of the Navy. He was devoted and assiduous, taking on his new role with a variety of above-and-beyond endeavors. First, he learned the multiplication table, which he had not learned before. He went to lectures on shipbuilding and visited naval shops to find out for himself the prices of tar and oil, hoping, as he said, to save the king money by this practice. By the end of his 25-year career working in the Admiralty, he had doubled the size of the Navy. But more than that, he'd made it more modern and more efficient, better organized, and capable of greater things. To your praises, declared the orator of Oxford University when Pepys retired, the whole ocean bears witness. Truly, sir, you have encompassed Britain with wooden walls. For more than a century, this was the view of Samuel Pepys, a great man of London, a great English gentleman, one of the heroes whose name popped up here and there as a competent and effective public servant. He became the president of the Royal Society and was serving as president when the Society brought out Isaac Newton's most celebrated work, the Philosophy Naturalis Principia Mathematica. He witnessed James II's will. He was friends with the poet and playwright John Dryden and with Sir Christopher Wren, the great London architect. And yet, there was another side of Pepys, a secret side, 
He was also a devoted journal writer or diarist. For ten years, he wrote a diary in a kind of code, creating what has been called the third greatest bedside book ever, after the Bible and Boswell's Life of Johnson. His diary, which was never intended to be read by anyone other than himself, was full, honest, and private. Three qualities which, along with his gift for vivid and economical description, and his taste for observing and recording striking details as he went about his life, as well as his privileged glimpse of a fascinating period of history, have lifted a routine written genre into the realm of great literature. You can open any page and disappear back into the world of Charles II, walking around London with peeps, attending the theater, gossiping about members of Parliament, eating dinners, arguing, fighting, loving, and lusting. His first-hand accounts of the plague and the Great Fire are widely read by historians and fans of literature. His love for his wife is genuine, but so too is his mistreatment of her, with infidelity and insensitivity marring his world, and occasionally violence turning his domestic life into something very dark indeed. And through all this, he proves a reliable narrator, open, honest, optimistic, clever, canny, ambitious, capable. For a hundred years, nobody knew about these diaries, and when they were published in the 1820s, the collective jaw of London critics and historians fell open. Sir Walter Scott wrote an early review, quote, Early necessity made Pepys laborious, studious, and careful, but his natural propensities were those of a man of pleasure. He appears to have been ardent in quest of amusement, especially where anything odd or uncommon was to be witnessed. To this thirst after novelty, the consequence of which has given great and varied interest to his diary, Pepys added a love of public amusements, which he himself seems to have considered as excessive. End quote. Scott recognized that people were going to read this diary and be shocked by the immorality at the highest levels of society from those already long-ago days. Pepys was a hero, and yet in these pages he was running around having sex with whoever would have him, seemingly, forcing himself on whatever maid happens to be standing nearby, having sex in church pews and carriages, and we'll get to all that, and engaging in a kind of corruption of his duties, taking bribes, taking kickbacks, skimming off the top. He was human, all too human, maybe more than human, and literature's gain promised to be historical reputation's loss. Scott says, quote, Our diarist must not be too severely judged. He lived in a time when the worst examples abounded, a time of court intrigue and state revolution, when nothing was certain for a moment, and when all who were possessed of any opportunity to make profit used it with the most shameless avidity, lest the golden minutes should pass away unimproved. In quitting the broad path of history, we seek for minute information concerning ancient manners and customs, the progress of arts and sciences, and the various branches of antiquity. We have never seen a mind so rich as the volumes before us. The variety of Pepys's tastes and pursuits led him into almost every department of life. He was a man of business, a man of information, if not of learning, a man of taste, a man of whim, and to a certain degree, a man of pleasure. He was a statesman, a bel esprit, a virtuoso, and a connoisseur. His curiosity made him an, an unwearied as well as a universal learner, and whatever he saw found its way into his tables. 
end quote. There we go. So I meant to talk for a few sentences, and instead I've gone on for several minutes. It's a big book, a big life, and a big milestone in our journey of literature. We're talking about the great 17th century man about town, Samuel Pepys, and his famous diary today on the history of literature. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. That's all. Your humble and obedient servant. You can tell from my rhetoric, I'm back in my beloved 18th century, and today we're going to be digging back even a little further to the 17th century, the post-Shakespeare period, even post-Milton, but only just barely. There's a little overlap there with Milton and Pepys. We're in London, that great literary city, walking the streets with one of the most unlikely of literary greats, the author of a book he never intended to be published. It's an interesting category those who didn't intend their works to be published. Who else falls into that category? Oral storytellers, perhaps, or maybe playwrights. But even they meant for their works to be shared with others, in some sense. And there are raconteurs and literature's wits and philosophers. Socrates never wrote anything down, and he's a great figure in literature. Dr. Johnson published a lot, but you might say that his conversation, recorded by Boswell, far outweighed his literary output, judged in retrospect. And then there were those who wrote for publication, but decided not to publish. Bakhtin turned, burned half his manuscripts out of necessity. Kafka wanted his to be burned, at least the ones that hadn't been published. Grace Bailey used to have short stories in her cabinets and her desk drawers. Her friend and neighbor, Donald Barthelme, used to dig them up and make her send them off to magazines. None of that is quite like Pepys. Pepys was not writing for posterity, he was writing for himself, making efforts to mask his words from others, and for a long time they remained masked. Perhaps that was part of the impact. By the time they reached the world, the world had been transformed. Nobody was still alive who could bear witness to the age. Pepys had the field to himself, and what he revealed was astonishing to those who read it. It would be as if ten volumes of journals written by a member of Lincoln's cabinet suddenly emerged today. If that member of the cabinet had a privileged view of Lincoln, Washington, D.C., the art scene, the armies, the culture, the gossip, the scandals, Congress, and the food and clothing and trends and foreign policy and everything else you might want to know, and even that might not fully capture the impact because the 1860s are already knowable to us in a way that the 1660s might not have been to those in the 1820s. Literacy was higher. We have a lot more paper, more newspapers survived, more letters, more documentation. The 1860s have not been lost to the fog of time to the same extent. So there we go. That's to put you in the right frame of mind for our project today. Let's take a quick break, do a few emails, then dig right into the lives of Samuel Pepys, the public life and the private one, and the way the two are fused together in the unlikeliest of masterpieces, The Diaries of Samuel Pepys.
The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, first up, an email from Clay. Subject, enjoying the podcast. Hi, Jack. I've been listening to your history of literature. <laughs> history of... Oh, let's start that over. I've been listening to your history of literature podcast for the past several months or so, and it's always a pleasure. I especially enjoyed the Camus episode from a couple weeks ago. His books and essays were a favorite of mine in college, and they still have a soft spot in my heart. I wanted to make a few recommendations for things I'd love to hear a podcast about, but obviously feel free to take them or leave them. Number one, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Number two, Anything by Patrick Modiano. Three, Anything by Walt Whitman. Four, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Five, If None of Those Work, More Chekhov Would Always Be Appreciated. All the best, Clay. Fellow resident of the D.C. area and a fellow prior resident, of Bologna. Wow. Some great suggestions there. They all go on the list. Whitman is one we're saving. He's a giant. Of course, we have to do Whitman. The others are less obvious, maybe, but all very deserving. I'm kind of surprised they haven't been chosen yet by our authors who come to talk about the books they have loved. But maybe that's around the corner. And Chekhov, we do have another short story by Chekhov on our list coming up not too long from now. Although the schedule changes a lot, I can't go too far without returning to our Russian master, the humble little doctor who sees straight into my soul. Thank you, Clay. Next up, a message from Brian. Thanks for the show. I've been listening now for about a year, and I am hooked. But I finally got around to supporting the show just recently. Sorry it took so long. Anyway, I love all your guests, especially Mike. I loved how livid he got over Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize for Literature. Ah, yes, that was <laughs> Mike Palindrome in uh, High Dudgeon in rare form. My favorite show, says Brian, 
was the one on Coleridge's Kublai Khan. I love the Romantic era. I thought maybe you could do a show on the relationship or lack of relationship between Shelley and Keats. Anyway, I've really enjoyed all your shows. You've encouraged me to read or reread some of the books you've discussed. I recently just read The Bear Came Over the Mountain for the first time. It is a great story. Keep up the great work. Brian. There we go. Another uh, recommendation for Alice Monroe and Chekhov. Two old favorites here at the History of Literature. Both are on the list for more. Alice Monroe is coming up very soon. And Keats has had his day with a two-parter. Shelley is still to come. What a wild, visionary poet that is. Just an extraordinary figure. We'll definitely dig into his relationship with Keats. Shelley's relationships with his peers, Byron, Keats, and of course, his wife Mary, are all kind of inspiring. That'll be a fun show to do. And the poetry, of course, is marvelous. I'm not sure I've read it as often as I've read Keats's poetry, but that might be better, since I'll come to it with some fresh eyes. And finally, a beautiful email from Listener S. Subject, Somebody is Listening. Dear Jack, I have come across your podcast about a week ago, and I am now addicted. It has always been difficult for me to listen to stories or audiobooks because I prefer to read. You know all that stuff about smelling a book and feeling the texture of the paper, etc. But also because I really find it impossible to connect with the voice of the person who is reading slash speaking. I am an Albanian living in Spain. Having been in lockdown for almost two months, teaching online for many hours, some days my eyes get too tired to focus. Therefore, I decided to give podcasts another try. Your voice, your way of speaking, and sense of humor reminded me of a friend of mine whom I haven't seen in a long time. So I continued listening, and I had this balmy and comforting feeling sweep over me. Lying down in bed at last, in the company of the greatest minds, I get to feel like all my fluttering pieces, stuck like a sheep's wool in barbed wire, except pieces of me are stuck in subway stations, computer screens, pillowcases, and bars, finally find their way back to me, and I begin to feel like myself again. I listened to John Keats's episode yesterday morning, and I cried. A lot. I cried until I couldn't distinguish whether I was crying for Keats and his short life. It's my birthday this Friday. I'm turning 28, so him dying at 26 made me quite miserable. Or for myself. Tonight, I listened to your Borges bit, and I enjoyed it a lot. I don't have one million friends, but I already have shared your podcast with a few people. I don't know why I am writing this. I guess to let you know that there is someone out there listening, inspired by your words and love for literature. Right now, I am reading Diary of Andres Fava by Cortazar. So I am going to end this email quoting Andres. An encouraging little tango. Go on. Don't stop. Just keep playing along. And this line by Eduardo Lozano. My heart imitation moss. What they tend to call classic is always a product achieved by the sacrifice of truth to beauty. Kind regards, S. Oh, S. Dear S, happy birthday. 28 years old. 
and stuck in a lockdown, as so many of us are. I was very moved by this email. I can't tell you and all the listeners how humbling it is to know that the podcast has resonated with so many people and to such an extent. It's a reminder of how powerful literature is, but also a reminder that literature can be a little lonely, too. You read literature to connect with a human heart, a human spirit. That's why I read Jane Austen, for example, and yet I can't talk to Jane. I can't hear her voice. I can't tell her about the 21st century world or marvel with her at how things have changed and yet stayed the same. For that, I need fellow listeners, and maybe that's why this little podcast has kept chugging along. It's more than book reviews, which so many podcasts are. It's more than a few recommendations. Nourishment, one of our listeners called it last time, and that seems like the right word. Nourishment for the listeners is what she meant, but that's not something I'm going to say because it's not my place to say that. But it's nourishment for me, intellectual and spiritual nourishment to read these books and think about them and think about what they mean to me and to think about how to translate that into something meaningful for other people. And so, when I hear that it has been meaningful to other people, I think that it's a job well done by Jack Wilson, and I think it's an endeavor that's worthwhile. Thank you, S, and best of luck to you. Thank you to everyone. So, speaking of connections, our Twitter account has gotten more active, the Jack Wilson, that's T-H-E, in case you don't know how to spell the, Jack Wilson, J-A-C-K-E, Wilson, and of course, Mike's Twitter account at at literature SC. If you need little jokes and pictures and links to literature stuff, and also babies and dogs and the Beatles and whatnot, there's a lot of whatnot on Twitter. That's what's on Twitter. They, they should call Twitter whatnot. That's how I read the incoming Twitter feed too. What? Not. What? Not. What? Oh, that one's interesting. Retweet. What? Not. What? Not. What? Oh, not. Speaking of whatnot, Samuel Pepys had a lot of whatnot in his life, and of course, he has the first usage of the term, at least of the term at the end of a series. The Oxford English Dictionary tells us that Pepys's 1663 diary entry said, the strange variety of people... Bakers, brewers, butchers, draymen, and whatnot. That's how the term began. You run through a list of things and then say, well, it'd be easier to say who wasn't there than who was, what wasn't included than what was. Now we use it for anything else. And also, whatever you like to call it. Kind of a whatchamacallit. A little different from Pepys's day, but guess what? 350 years is a long time. Language evolves, and so do we, and so does our episode. We'll take a quick break, evolve like madmen, and come back ready to discuss our man Samuel Pepys after this.
Okay, Samuel Pepys was born in 1633 to a family on the rise. For centuries, his family had lived in the country. Farmers, rent collectors, monastic reeves, and eventually they worked their way into the gentry. His father was a tailor and moved the family to London. His mother was the sister of a butcher. Pepys went to school at St. Paul's in London and went off to Cambridge to study. There isn't much news. There isn't much information about his career at Cambridge other than one note that he was disciplined for being, quote, scandalously overserved with drink, end quote. Later in life, after his success as an administrator, he was offered the provostship of King's College, which he turned down, but he did leave his famous collection of books and manuscripts to Cambridge. At 22, he got married to Elizabeth, which we will discuss later. At 25, he had a horrible abdominal operation to remove a stone, which he endured without anesthetic and which nearly killed him. He celebrated the anniversary of his survival for the rest of his life with what he called a solemn feast. At 26, he went with his cousin Montague, an admiral who later became the first Earl of Sandwich, which is not the same as the gambling Earl of Sandwich who invented the sandwich. This Earl of Sandwich was not so lucky as that. He was merely an admiral who was a hero and close to the king. Pepys went with this Earl of Sandwich on a sea voyage. He returned to London and became a clerk, then went on another voyage with his famous cousin, serving as his secretary. This time, the voyage was more momentous, as it was the fleet that brought back Charles II from exile, which enabled him to become king. Pepys was in favor now, and thanks to Montague and the king's respect for him, he became a clerk in the navy, given an official residence and an annual salary, and soon worked his way up the ladder. He had started his diary, too. He started in 1660 and wrote until 1669 when his eyesight, uh, problems with his eyesight made it too hard for him to continue. We see then the years of his rise, the years of his somewhat young marriage, his close-up view of the king and his court, and all the societal ins and outs of a man with money and increasing amounts of power and influence. But also we see just the astonishing events of that decade. These were eventful years. Parliament was in shock, having gone from regicide and Cromwell's Commonwealth to a king being back on the throne. In the next ten years, there's a new king, and there's all that that means. There's the Great Plague of 1665. They actually get news of the plague approaching for over a year until it finally hits London in that year, 1665. Bubonic Plague, which at its high point killed 6,000 people a week in London. Everyone with money fled the city. Some of Pepys's good friends get the plague. And yet Pepys refuses to leave, saying he will stay and face the risk for his king, just as soldiers and sailors have done. The following year, the great fire of London rages through the city for three days. Pepys records all this just as he records the activity of his job, the details of his social life, and the vicissitudes of his marriage. When it was finally published, 150 or so years later, the diary was a revelation, the document of a lost era. Coffee houses were new. Peeps went out. At one point he sent out for, quote, a cup of tea, a china drink, I have not before tasted, end quote. Descriptions of events, 
firsthand, a gold mine for historians, not flowing, majestic history, not a, a historian trying to summarize, also not trying to persuade or impress. These are staccato-like details, one after the other, that are strangely compulsive. Peeps will say on one day that he went to church and the sermon was lazy and poor. And he'll add, quote, This day I began to put on buckles to my shoes, end quote. On another day, he'll say, quote, In our way to Kensington, we understood how that my Lord Chesterfield had killed another gentleman about half an hour before and was fled. I went to the coffee club and heard very good discourse. It was an answer to Mr. Harrington's answer, who said that the state of the Roman government was not a settled government, and so it was in wonder that the balance of prosperity was in one hand and the command in another, it being therefore always in a posture of war. End quote. <laughs> right after the murder and the guy who fled. Peeps will summarize his day's work as the naval secretary, then describe his dinner like this, quote, home from my office to my lord's lodgings, where my wife had got ready a very fine dinner, a dish of marrow bones, a leg of mutton, a loin of veal, a dish of fowl, three pullets, and a dozen of larks all in a dish, a great tart, a neat's tongue, a dish of anchovies, a dish of prawns and cheese. My company was my father, my uncle Fenner, his two sons, Mr. Pierce, and all their wives, and my brother Tom, end quote. In one day's entry, he'll say, I went out to Charing Cross to see Major General Harrison hanged, drawn, and quartered. Then he'll add that he spent the afternoon setting up my shelves in my study. He's great at description. His aunt is a poor, religious, well-meaning, good soul, talking of nothing but God Almighty, and that with so much innocence that mightily pleased me. His sister is, quote, a pretty good-bodied woman and not over-thick as I thought she would have been, but full of freckles and not handsome in the face, end quote. His cousin Stankies comes to visit, and Peeps is like the city mouse entertaining the country mouse. Quote, but Lord, what a stir Stankies makes with his being crowded in the streets and wearied in walking in London and would not be wooed by my wife and Ashwell to go to a play nor to Whitehall or to see the lions, though he was carried in a coach. I never could have thought there had been upon earth a man so little curious in the world as he is. End quote. Peeps is curious. Peeps is a delightful guide through his world, pointing out the follies of being human. He buys a new watch and describes himself almost like a child with a shiny new object. Quote, but Lord... To see how much of my old folly and childishness hangs on me still, that I cannot forbear carrying my watch in my hand in the coach all afternoon and seeing what o'clock it is one hundred times. End quote. There are times when we love Peeps for all his flaws because he is so disarmingly frank about them. He buys a new wig and goes to church, assuming that he will be a spectacle. Quote, I found that my coming in a periwig did not prove so strange to the world as I was afeard it would, for I thought that all the church would presently have cast their eyes upon me, but I found no such thing. End quote. And there's this. He gets angry when his wife leaves her things behind. Anyone who's married knows what kind of this kind of petty argument is like, but very few men or women are as willing to fess up to the ridiculousness of their position as peeps. Quote, home and found all well, only myself somewhat vexed 
at my wife's neglect in leaving her scarf, waistcoat, and night dressings in the coach today. Though I confess, she did give them to me to look after. End quote. Those are the details that keep us reading, even if we're not historians of the period. We're historians of life, and it's fascinating to see peeps respond to life in ways we ourselves recognize, even when the details are transformed by time and place to something comically strange. Famously, as the Great Fire started ravaging London, Pepys ran out of a building and dug a hole, hoping to protect his most valuable objects from incineration. He threw his papers in there and his gold and his cheese. Wait, what? Yes, his cheese, a large wheel of Parmesan cheese, which may have weighed as much as 200 pounds. It was a rare and expensive import from Italy. These wheels were given as diplomatic gifts and used gradually over time, increasing in value as they aged. So there you go. Gold, papers, and cheese. Fascinating stuff. Peeps' writing is at its greatest during great events like this. Here's how his account of the Great Fire of London begins. Lord's Day. Some of our maids sitting up late last night to get things ready against our feast today. Jane called us up about three in the morning to tell us of a great fire they saw in the city. So I rose and slipped on my nightgown and went to her window and thought it to be on the back side of Mark Lane at the farthest. But being unused to such fires as followed, I thought it far enough off and so went to bed again and to sleep. About seven, rose again to dress myself and there looked out at the window and saw the fire not so much as it was and further off so to my closet to set things to rights after yesterday's cleaning. By and by, Jane comes and tells me that she hears that above 300 houses have been burned down tonight by the fire, we saw, and that it is now burning down all Fish Street by London Bridge. So I made myself ready presently and walked to the tower and there got up upon one of the high places. Sir J. Robinson's little son going up with me, and there I did see the houses at the end of the bridge all on fire, and an infinite great fire on this and the other side of the end of the bridge, which, among other people, did trouble me for poor little Mitchell and our Sarah on the bridge, so down, with my heart full of trouble, to the lieutenant of the tower, who tells me that it begun this morning in the king's baker's house in Pudding Lane." and that it hath burned St. Magnus's church and most part of Fish Street already. So I down to the waterside, and there got a boat and through bridge, and there saw a lamentable fire. Poor Mitchell's house, as far as the old swan, already burned that way, and the fire running further, that in a very little time it got as far as the steel yard while I was there. Everybody endeavoring to remove their goods, and flinging into the river or bringing them into lighters that lay off, poor people staying in their houses as long as till the very fire touched them, and then running into boats, or clambering from one pair of stairs by the waterside to another. And among other things, the poor pigeons, I perceive, were loath to leave their houses, but hovered about the windows and balconies, till they were, some of them burned, their wings, and fell down. Peeps continues. Soon as dined, I and moon away and walked through the city, the streets full of nothing but people and horses and carts loaden with goods, ready to run over one another, and removing goods from one burned house to another. 
They now were moving out of Canning Streets, which received goods in the morning, into Lombard Streets and further, and among others I now saw my little goldsmith, Stokes, receiving some friend's goods, whose house itself was burned the day after. We parted at Paul's, he home and I to Paul's wharf, where I had appointed a boat to attend me, and took in Mr. Carcass and his brother, whom I met in the streets, and carried them below and above bridge to and again to see the fire, which was now got further, both below and above, and no likelihood of stopping it. Met with the king and Duke of York on their barge, and with them to Queeneth, and there called Sir Richard Brown to them. Their order was only to pull down houses apace, and so below bridge the waterside, but little was or could be done, the fire coming upon them so fast. Good hopes there was of stopping it at the three cranes above, and at Butolf's wharf below bridge, if care be used, but the wind carries it into the city, so as we know not by the waterside what it do there. River full of lighters and boats taking in goods, and good goods swimming in the water, and only I observed that hardly one lighter or boat in three that had the goods of a house in, but there was a pair of Virginials in it. Having seen as much as I could now, I away to Whitehall by appointment, and there walked to St. James's Parks, and there met my wife and Creed and Wood and his wife, and walked to my boat, and there upon the water again, and to the fire up and down, it still increasing, and the wind great, so near the fire as we could for smoke, and all over the Thames with one's face in the wind, you were almost burned with a shower of fire drops. This is very true. So as houses were burned by these drops and flakes of fire, three or four, nay, five or six houses, one from another. When we could endure no more upon the water, we to a little alehouse on the bankside, over against the three cranes, and there stayed till it was dark almost, and saw the fire grow, and, as it grew darker, appeared more and more, and in corners, and upon steeples, and between churches and houses, as far as we could see up the hill of the city, in a most horrid, malicious, bloody flame, not like the fine flame of an ordinary fire. Barbary and her husband away before us, we stayed till, it being darkish, we saw the fire as only one entire arch of fire from this to the other side of the bridge, and in a bow up the hill for an arch of above a mile long, it made me weep to see it. The churches, houses, and all on fire and flaming at once, and a horrid noise the flames made, and the cracking of houses at their ruins. So home with a sad heart, and there find everybody discoursing and lamenting the fire, and poor Tom Hayter come with some few of his goods saved out of his house, which is burned upon Fish Street's hill. I invited him to lie at my house, and did receive his goods, but was deceived in his lying there, the news coming every moment of the growth of the fire, so as we were forced to begin to pack up our own goods, and prepare for their removal, and did by moonshine, it being brave dry, and moonshine, and warm weather, carry much of my goods into the garden, and Mr. Hayter and I did remove my money and iron chests into my cellar, as thinking that the safest place." and got my bags of gold into my office ready to carry away, and my chief papers of accounts also there, and my tallies into a box by themselves. So great was our fear, as Sir W. Batten hath carts come out of the country to fetch away his goods this night. We did put Mr. Hayter, poor man, to bed a little, but he got but very little rest, so much noise being in my house, taking down of goods. End quote. Because Pepys never intended for his diary to be published, 
He's completely open, even when it's unflattering to him. He beats a housemaid with a broom and kicks the cook. Then he writes about it. He feels bad. He feels bad about the sailors, too, who sometimes don't have enough to eat or who can't feed their families. Meanwhile, Peeps himself is getting rich, partly from his salary and partly from tariffs he collects. He'll pay wages from his own pocket for some of these poor sailors, then go out to dinner, quote, very merry, end quote. He was cynical and corrupt and aware that he was in a doggy dog world. He had jealous rivals who attempted to undermine him or who fought back when he threatened to end their own pillaging of the public funds. But at the same time, he was genuinely concerned about the well-being of the Navy, and he took steps to reform what he could. Here's another passage I love. His father and his wife have hidden his money by burying it in the garden, and Peeps goes with them to dig it up at night. They can't find the right place, and when they do, Peeps is enraged to see where they've chosen to bury it, and then digging it up is like a comedy of errors. Here's how he describes it. Quote, My father and I, with a dark lantern, it being now night, into the garden with my wife, and there went about our great work to dig up my gold. But Lord, what a toss I was for some time in, that they could not justly tell where it was, that I began heartily to sweat and be angry, that they should not agree better upon the place, and at last to fear that it was gone. But by and by, poking with a spit, we found it, and then begun with a spud to lift up the ground. But good God, to see how sillily they did it, not half a foot underground, and in the sight of the world from a hundred places, if anybody by accident were near hand, and within sight of a neighbor's window, and their hearing also being close by, only my father says that he saw them all gone to church before he begun the work, when he laid the money, but that do not excuse it to me. But I was out of my wits almost, and the more from that, upon my lifting up the earth with the spud, I did discern that I had scattered the pieces of gold round about the ground among the grass and loose earth, and taking up the iron head pieces wherein they were put, I perceived the earth was got among the gold, and wet, so that the bags were all rotten, and all the notes, that I could not tell what in the world to say to it, not knowing how to judge what was wanting, or what had been lost by Gibson in his coming down, which all put together did make me mad, and at last was forced to take up the head pieces, dirt and all, and as many of the scattered pieces as I could with the dirt discerned by the candlelight, and carry them up into my brother's chamber, and there lock them up till I had to eat a little supper, and then all people going to bed. W. Hewer and I did all alone with several pails of water and basins, at last washed the dirt off of the pieces, and parted the pieces and the dirt, and then begun to tell, and by a note which I had of the value of the hole in my pocket, do find that there was short above a hundred pieces, which did make me mad. And considering that the neighbor's house was so near that we could not suppose we could speak one to another in the garden at the place where the gold lay, especially my father being deaf, but they must know what we had been doing on. I feared that they might in the night come and gather some pieces and prevent us the next morning. So W. Hewer and I out again about midnight, for it was now grown so late, and there by candlelight did make shift to gather forty-five pieces more, and so in and to cleanse them. And by this time it was past two in the morning, and so to bed with my mind pretty quiet to think that I have recovered so many. And then to bed, and I lay in the trundle bed, 
the girl being gone to bed to my wife, and there lay in some disquiet all night, telling of the clock till it was daylight. End quote. In Pepys's diary, we hear what it was like to attend the theater in these years, and he gives us his opinion of the plays that he sees, unvarnished by the centuries of Shakespearean adulation. For example, he thought Twelfth Night was a silly play, not relating at all to the name or the day. He thought Midsummer Night's Dream was awful. Quote, saw Midsummer Night's Dream, which I have never seen before, nor shall ever again, for it is the most insipid, ridiculous play that I ever saw in my life. End quote. Henry VIII was another dud. Quote, though I went with resolution to like it, it is so simple a thing made up of a great many patches. There is nothing the world good or well done. End quote. Romeo and Juliet was the worst that ever I heard in my life. On the other hand, Pepys loved Macbeth, which he saw nine times. A most excellent play in all respects, he declared and said, it is one of the best plays for a stage and variety of dancing and music that ever I saw. One of the new elements of the theater in Pepys's day was that women were allowed to act on stage before then. Men had to play the women's parts. Pepys met with one of these actresses backstage, a woman named Nell Gwynne, and became smitten with her, nicknaming her Pretty Witty Nell. Nell Gwynne became a mistress of the king, and I guess we should probably talk about Pepys now and his extremely lustful habits. Pepys married his wife Elizabeth when she was 15, a penniless beauty whose parents were French. He was 22 and just getting started in his career then, and he later recalled how Elizabeth's tireless efforts in their meager circumstances, forever indebted him to her. Quote, she used to make coal fires and wash my foul clothes with her own hand for me, poor wretch, in our little room at Lord Sandwich's, for which I ought forever to love and admire her, and do. End quote. It's clear that he loves her, and he's insanely jealous of her interactions with other men. They got along well, fought occasionally, once he gave her a black eye. Once, she wrote him a letter telling him she was unhappy in the marriage. He refused to read it and burned it in front of her face to discourage such actions in the future. And then he found that she kept a copy, and he was incensed that it was not only something she kept, which describes her unhappiness, but she's kept it right along with his love letters to her, their marriage certificate, and the will in which he was leaving her his property. So it made him hate those documents, too, to see that she's kept them close to this document that, in his view, would disgrace him. Here's how he describes the scene. Quote, My wife begun to speak again of the necessity of her keeping somebody to bear her company, for her familiarity with her other servants is, is it that spoils them all, and other company she hath none, which is too true, and called for Jane to reach her out of her trunk, giving her the keys to that purpose, a bundle of papers and pulls out a paper, a copy of what, a pretty while since, she had wrote in a discontent to me, which I would not read, but burnt. She now read it, and it was so piquant, and wrote in English, and most of it true, of the retiredness of her life, and how unpleasant it was, that being wrote in English, and so, in danger of being met with and read by others, I was vexed at it, and desired her, and then commanded her to tear it. When she desired to be excused it, I forced it from her, and tore it, and withal took her 
other bundle of papers from her and leapt out of the bed and in my shirt, clapped them into the pocket of my breeches that she might not get them from me. And having got on my stockings and breeches and gown, I pulled them out one by one and tore them all before her face, though it went against my heart to do it, she crying and desiring me not to do it. But such was my passion and trouble to see the letters of my love to her and my will, wherein I had given her all I have in the world, when I went to sea with my lord's sandwich, to be joined with a paper of so much disgrace to me and dishonor if it should have been found by anybody. Having torn them all, saving a bond of my uncle Robert's, which she hath long had in her hands, and our marriage license, and the first letter that ever I sent her when I was her servant, I took up the pieces and carried them into my chamber, and there, after many disputes with myself, whether I should burn them or no, and having picked up the pieces of the paper she read today, and of my will which I tore, I burnt all the rest, and so went out to my office, troubled in mind. Hither comes Major Tolhurst, one of my old acquaintance in Cromwell's time, and some, sometimes of our club, to see me, and I could do no less than carry him to the mitre, and having sent for Mr. Bean, a merchant, a neighbor of mine, we sat and talked. Tolhurst telling me the manner of their collieries in the north. We broke up, and I home to dinner. And to see my folly as discontented as I am, when my wife came, I could not forbear smiling all dinner, till she began to speak bad words again, and then I began to be angry again, and so to my office. Mr. Bland came in the evening to me hither, and sat talking to me about many things of merchandise and I should be very happy in his discourse, durst I confess my ignorance to him, which is not so fit for me to do. There coming a letter to me from Mr. Pierce, the surgeon, by my desire appointing his and Dr. Clerk's coming to dine with me next Monday. I went to my wife and agreed upon matters, and at last for my honor am forced to make her presently a new moyer gown to be seen by Mrs. Clerk, which troubles me to part with so much money. But, however, it sets my wife and I to friends again, though I and she never were so heartily angry in our lives as today, almost, and I doubt the heart-burning will not be soon over, and the truth is, I am sorry for the tearing of so many poor, loving letters of mine from sea and elsewhere to her. So, to my office again, and there the scrivener brought me the end of the manuscript which I am going to get together of things of the Navy, which pleases me much. So, home, and mighty friends with my wife again, and so to bed. End quote. What a day. Their marriage was happy and loving, but full of hateful recriminations as well. Elizabeth apparently wasn't interested in sex and maybe had some physical problems that prevented her from enjoying it. That's been speculated. And so... In spite of his love for Elizabeth, the sort of love-hate relationship the two of them have, Pepys had affairs all over London. Regular mistresses and casual affairs, servants, barmaids, and companions. He also bedded the wives, daughters, and mothers of friends and colleagues. He flirted with, fondled, had sex with women in their homes, in carriages, in theater stalls, in the back rooms of taverns, and in church pews. He had affairs with the wives of the men, whom he helped in his official position. It's possible the men knew about and encouraged these liaisons to help advance their career. Pimps also went after the young maids that worked in his household and was once caught in spectacular fashion 
when his wife came up suddenly and, quote, did find me embracing the girl, and indeed I was with my mane in her cunny, end quote. Mane there means hand, apparently. His wife was furious. It fired the servant, which Peep said he did with tears in his eyes, and he couldn't quite get over her. She left the house and wound up in a park known for prostitution. Whetstones Park, he writes, where I never was before. End quote. This makes Peeps feel bad, and he says, It does trouble me mightily that the poor girl should be in a desperate condition, forced to go thereabouts. So he seeks her out, admits to himself he can't forget her, and he goes in search of her. He finds her with a doctor, and gives her money, and kisses her. Then his wife attacks him again, forces him to admit the truth, and swore by all that was good that she would slit the nose of this girl. Peeps finally pacifies his wife by agreeing to write on a paper that Deb, that's the girl's name, he, he agrees to write on a paper that Deb is a whore. And yet, he kept up the correspondence with Deb's husband. She eventually married a theologian, of all people, and Peeps helped him get a job as a ship's chaplain. It's a weird kind of affair to our sensibility. It arises in an atmosphere of sexual harassment, as we would view it today, and Peeps clearly makes only half-hearted attempts not to be unfaithful. At the same time, he notes how troubled his wife is by having a mistress living under their roof, and Peeps says the visitor, quote, "...wonders to find my wife so dull and melancholy, but God knows she hath too much cause." End quote. The portrait painted is of a liberal London, at least for the powerful. Peeps shows some remorse, sometimes, and sometimes he was rejected. In one church, he went after a pretty, modest maid whom I did labor to take by the hand and the body, but she would not, but got further and further from me, and at last I could perceive her to take pins out of her pocket to prick me if I should touch her again. End quote. In his sexual exploits, his parade of conquests, Peeps was here following the lead of his king, Charles II, whose sexual prowess was the stuff of legend. They nicknamed him after a horse, known for his virility and the size of his endowment. He had a Charles, I'm talking about now, Charles II had at least 12 children with a string of mistresses, some of whom lived in his palaces, others who were ushered in and out through side entrances on a nightly basis, including actresses and famous members of the nobility. One of Charles's mistresses was Barbara Villiers, the Countess of Castlemaine. She was known for her beauty and cleverness, and she was known for being a sexual dynamo herself, with a prowess to match Charles's. Peeps was smitten by her, and he recorded in his diary an erotic dream he had about her, quote, the best that ever was dreamt, he says, end quote. Once he ran across her undergarments in a garden at Whitehall, and he was staggered by the effect. They were, he wrote, the finest smocks and linen petticoats, laced with rich lace at the bottom, that ever I saw and it did me good to look upon them. Peeps also had a strange response to seeing a mummified queen, Catherine, the queen to Henry V. They opened her casket for special members of the public. It happened to be Peeps's birthday, so he took his wife and servants along. They made a day of it. Peeps says, quote, I did kiss her mouth, reflecting upon it that I did kiss a queen, and that this was my birthday, 36 years old, that I did first kiss a queen, end quote. The tower in those days was basically a rudimentary zoo, 
They held exotic animals there and displayed them to the public from time to time. Pepys was called to the house of Sir William Batten once to view a baboon. Pepys thought he was, quote, so much like a man, I do believe it already understands much English, and I am of the mind that it might be taught to speak or make signs, end quote. And then there was the plague. Pepys fears it coming, and when it arrives, he sees the devastation and sadness that it brings. He stumbles over corpses on his way home. He sees the people leaving, the people buried in mass graves, the quarantine efforts, the way the streets are thinned of people. The nation's commerce comes to a halt. And then things get really bad. They go from bad to worse. It is, he says, a town grown so unhealthy that a man cannot depend on living two days to an end. This disease is making us more cruel to one another than if we are dogs, he wrote. He continues his work and struggles with being happy at times, which makes him feel guilty when there's so much suffering going on around him. Quote, My meeting dead corpses of the plague carried to be buried close to me at noonday through the city in Fanchurch Street. To see a person sick of the sores carried close by me by Grace Church in a hackney coach. My finding the Angel Tavern at the lower end of Tower Hill shut up, to hear that poor pain my waiter hath buried a child and is dying himself, to hear that a laborer I sent but the other day to Dagenham's to know how they did there is dead of the plague, and that one of my own watermen that carried me daily fell sick as soon as he had landed me on Friday morning last and is now dead of the plague. End quote. A few weeks later, a cart full of corpses passes him in the street, and he writes, quote, I am come to think almost nothing of it. End quote. Lord, how empty the streets are and melancholy. He wrote a week later, so many poor sick people in the streets full of sores and so many sad stories overheard as I walk, everybody talking of this dead and that man sick and so many in this place and so many in that. And they tell me that in Westminster, there is never a physician and but one apothecary left, all being dead but that there are great hopes of a great decrease in cases this week. God send it. End quote. Yes, indeed. God send it. Eventually, God did send it for London. So why is this diary so good? A lot of people keep diaries. What sets Pepys apart? Did he have literary ambitions? We know he tried writing a romance, which he eventually destroyed because he didn't think it was any good. But he wasn't trying to write the diary as literature. He was simply writing the best diary he could. Nevertheless, he loved books. He was famous for his collection even before the diary came to light. As he grew in status and fortune, Pepys started collecting older works from previous eras, and he liked history, politics, science, and religion, which he collected in a number of different languages. He collected ballads and prints, and he was a voracious reader. He read at every possible moment, and for all kinds of reasons of self-improvement. He was curious about everything, and he wanted to appreciate life and culture. He read plays before he attended them, for example, so that he could appreciate the performance better and discuss the play afterwards with his wife, even hoping to commit passages to memory to help him do so. That, perhaps, is what elevated Pepys's diary to literature, the frankness, the glimpses of humanity, and Pepys's literary sensibility, which he cultivated through his assiduous reading. Among other unforgettable passages, he gave our language the phrase, and so to bed, 
a wonderful little closing remark. That's how he moves through the world. To home, to dinner, back to office, to closet, down to river, to the ship. They're like cinematic jump cuts, not belaboring the transitions, just taking us from one to the next, to pub, to office, to tavern, to home, and at the end of the day, and so to bed. We know why Peeps stopped writing his diary, but not why he started. He stopped writing his diary after about 10 years because his eyesight was failing and made it hard for him to continue. But why did he start writing the diary? We don't know, but we know what it did. It helped him to live his life in the present, noticing things better, feeling this more, and organizing his thoughts and memories. And there's just joy in it, in his discovery of his self. He works with a king, and yet, through his diary, he puts himself at the center of his own story. This is a very modern concept. We star in our own show. He writes, quote, We went towards Westminster on foot, and at the Golden Lion near Charing Cross, we went in and drank a pint of wine, and so parted, and thence home, where I found my wife and maid a-washing. I sat up till the bellman came by with his bell just under my window as I was writing of this very line, and cried, Past one of the clock, in a cold, frosty, windy morning. I then went to bed, and left my wife and the maid a-washing still. End quote. Later in life, Pepys was arrested and sent to the tower, accused of piracy and treason. There was some justification to the piracy charge, as Pepys had long followed the practice of taking some of the loot from captured ships for himself, which he called, quote, perks of the job, end quote. The treason charge was based on the accusations of an old enemy. Pepys was able to clear his name by investigating his accuser and exposing him as a liar and a fraud. After having Pepys's diary give us such an illuminating window into the decade from 1660 to 1669, it's hard to have the rest of his life return to the shadows of time. We don't get to see his account of the treason, for example, or the accusations of treason and his efforts to clear his name. We don't get to see the death of his wife, Elizabeth. Pepys's diary is long and full and exhaustive, and yet it leaves us wanting more. We're like those greedy readers next to the guttering candle, the windows full of frost, and us struggling to stay awake for just one more page, just one more story, just a little more literature. But eventually the book ends, as all things do, and we let the pages close and turn out the light. Our time with Samuel Pepys and his marvelous diary are over. And so, to bed. going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to all my emailers and commenters, and hey, head over to Twitter if you are a Twitterer, where you can join us for some conversation. That's at the Jack Wilson and at LiteratureSC, which is Mike's handle. My thanks also to the great Samuel Pepys, a man of his time, a complicated figure for the Me Too era, a man who knew better and yet was a victim of impulse and the sexual dynamics of his day but whose candor and self-criticism also make him worth reading and enjoying it for what it is, which is like nothing else in literature, really. For putting us into the world of Restoration England, 
Peeps is unique. And there are many periods of history that don't have a Peeps to guide us through, sadly enough. But let's not end on that note. Let's end on a note of celebration. That we have what we have, and we enjoy what we enjoy, and we learn what we learn, and we like what we like. Speaking of which, I like you, dear listener, and I hope you liked this episode. And if you didn't, well, maybe don't come and find me and burn it in front of me. You don't need to do that. Just wait patiently for the next one, which hopefully you will like better. See how easy this is? See how civilized we are? We're still passionate, aren't we? But we can do that without hurting one another. I'm sure we can, or at least we can try. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>